So I'm going to invite my friend Sandra to come up and share, teach with us today. Teach us. Sorry, babe. We said we'd try and get you on at 1030. Just too much excitement. It's okay. It's going to take a little longer. Spirit of the living God. Think of a line from the Mass that says, We do well always and everywhere to give you thanks. I thank you for Sandra. I thank you for her life uh, poured out in worship to you in whatever it is that she's doing. I thank you for the time that she spent preparing this sermon. I pray now as she brings it for a distilling and just her sense of your helping her word by word, line by line, bring just what we need to hear. May she be blessed. May she be filled. May she be enriched by this teaching time and not drained but filled up. And we trust you, Lord, uh, to speak to us and through her. And we come against anything that's not of you would get in the way of that. And we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Um, so last time I spoke, I talked for an hour because my, my original life goal was to be a prof, and so I think that probably would still be a better suit for me. <coughs> so I'm going to try to resist telling you all the cool things I read about. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> which is what I did last time, I think. Um, so, but uh, please, for the love of God, if it gets to like 20 minutes, people start waving your hands. Christians are always very nice, but you don't have to be nice. I totally can take it. Be like, we're done. So, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and even as I was driving here, I'm like, okay, what can I take out? What can I take out? Um, so... Um, I just wanted to, there's a couple of books that I read that I drew from a lot, um, and so i just tell you those books from the start. Um, Walter Brueggemann's The Prophetic Imagination, which is like a fabulous, fabulous book, if you want to read that. Um, and then, I don't know if, you're, if anyone's familiar, but um, there was a kind of professor, philosopher, rabbi, theologian, civil rights activist guy named Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he wrote the book, The Prophets, and that's also what I drew quite a bit from. Also, like a fabulous, fabulous writer. Um, do we have our, I guess, if I push this button? Oh, all right. So this is our passage today, um, First Kings 19. Um, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if, you, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. They went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors, who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, Get up and eat. He looked around 
and there beside his head was some break bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, Back the same way you came and traveled to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Malhola, <laughs> to replace you as my prophet. <laughs> Anyone who escapes from Hazel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elijah. Yet I will preserve 7,000, or I have, sometimes it says I have, preserved 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. <coughs> All right. <laughs> so this is like a pretty sweet passage. So I was kind of excited to be able to talk about it. Um, the trick with these kind of passages, I think, is that we've heard it so many times that it's hard to hear it new. Um, and I, when I prep a sermon, I like literally am just like, this is my prayer every single time. It's like, God, these are your people. I don't know what they need to hear. You know what they need to hear. You need to give me something. So I apologize now for where this ends up, <laughs> but it's not my fault. We'll just blame God. I really felt God leading and, um, but yeah. And so I'm going to try to tie this into sustainability. Well, I do, but yeah. So anyway, um, the background of this passage, which I'll just quickly remind everyone, is that he's um, just come off the, uh, just before this is when he has had the contest with the prophets of Baal, and which everyone I'm sure is quite familiar with, where there's the, um, he gets, he rounds, he says to King Ahab, get all of Israel to round up, go to the top of the mountain, and all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah, so it's actually 850 prophets and all of Israel, so, um, and then they have contest about whose God is going to set fire to the altar, and um, I think everybody knows who wins, Elijah kind of wins that one, and everyone goes, whoa, you're right, the Lord is God, um, but that is all they say, they don't, in subsequent chapters, no one ever actually, there's no turning back, there's no repentance, everyone just goes, whoa, you're right, he's God, and then they still keep worshiping idols. So um, it doesn't actually, we often think of that story as a like grand success, but 
it's kind of like a really big show, but it doesn't actually turn people's hearts. Um, so, um, but Elijah. Um, Elijah is like this super fascinating character. I mean, he's like passionate, he's bold, he's obedient, he's dependent, he's full of symbolism, he's honest, he's very, very human. Um, we don't really know a lot about him, but he's like one of the major prophets. He's like revered in Judaism and Islam. Um, <clears throat> as you know, he's the one that they set a cup out and a chair out for at um, Passover. He's supposed to be present at circumcisions, apparently. Um, he was one of the him and Moses were in that came to visit Jesus in the Transfiguration. Um, so he's kind of like a Moses character. He's also predicted to be the one to come before Jesus, which Jesus later says is John the Baptist is like coming in the spirit of Elijah. Um, and his name means my God is Yahweh, and which is basically, I think, his whole mission. <laughs> Essentially, he's sort of saying my God is Yahweh and that Yahweh is the one they should worship. Um, but he doesn't get his own book. You know, sometimes I still sort of think that I should like flip it open and be able to see, oh, here's Elijah's book. He gets eight chapters. So he's like super major, but um, he only gets eight chapters. And he obviously, and as we all know, he doesn't die. He gets to be one of the few people just taken up into heaven. Um, swing low, sweet chariot. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, um, and then his social and political climate that he comes into is um, there's Egypt, Moses, Joshua, then there's all the judges and prophets that kind of lead them for a while. The people get tired of judges and prophets, and they would say, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And God says, but a king's going to be basically just like Pharaoh. He's going to use you. He's going to abuse you. He's going to take the best of all you have, your daughters, your food. Your, he's going to tax you to death. Like, it's just going to, you're going to complain about it later. And they're like, sounds great. Give us a king. Um, so they get a king. And they, the first king is Saul, of course. And Saul turns out to be crazy and idolatrous and it all goes south, right, as we all know. Um, then there's David, who's like pretty darn okay, you know, little, little slip-ups here and there, you know, but uh, he's pretty good. And then there's Solomon, and Solomon is basically when kind of mass idolatry sort of sets in. Um, and so by about, there's about 80 years between Solomon and, and Ahab, so by the time, and the, the kingdom is divided too at this point, right? There's Israel's the 10 tribes, and then there's Benjamin and Judah as, as uh, the Judean there's a king for those two, and then there's the king. So Ahab and Jezebel are king and queen over um, Israel. And it says in the Bible that as each king comes, it says, and this one was more evil than the one before, and then this one was more evil than the one before, and then this one was really more evil than the one before. So it just kind of keeps going. And the two, Israel and Judah, it also says over and over again that they're in constant war. So it's just, they're... Everyone is turned away from God. They're in idolatry. They've knocked down the altars. I mean, um, people often accuse Elijah of exaggerating here, but he, it's, it's pretty accurate. It's not totally accurate, but... Um, and um, so Elijah's coming in in a pretty kind of oppressive time, you know, um, a pretty dark time. Kings are evil, and, um, you know, Jezebel, of course, is super evil. Got to have some evil woman in the Bible, I guess. Um, and, uh, <laughs> sorry, that's my inner feminism coming up. Ah! Um, <clears throat> um, and people have forgotten God. And um, this isn't, this, this doesn't just pain God. The prophets are really, have God's heart laid on them, right? So this is a pain to Elijah as well. He, he suffers, the prophets suffer. 
Um, that's sort of their lot, is to, to suffer with God and to, to feel God's heart. So um, Elijah is also <coughs> hurting that his people have turned. Um, and before he, uh, he kind of gets introduced just like, you know, there's all of a sudden he's prophesying. Like there's no sort of real introduction to him. We know he comes from Tishbe and then that's it. He's prophesying that there's going to be no rain. So there's no, before the, he has the contest with the prophets, there's the three and a half years of no rain. And um, after he's prophesies that there's no rain, God says, now go hide by the Jordan River and get fed by ravens. And ironically, ravens, are, of course, are an unclean bird. Um, but it seems so like God to feed somebody by an unclean bird. Don't, doesn't it feel like that's kind of like God's like? Um, breaks his own rules just to show it's not about the rules all the time. Um, uh, and then after that, he's, God says, all right, now that you've been hanging out in the desert for a long time, drinking from the Jordan, um, there's all the symbolism around the Jordan River, of course, John the Baptist, that they crossed over the Jordan River to get into the promised land. He's fed by ravens. Then he says, go get fed by this widow. And then this widow's like, I can't feed you. I'm just about to serve my last meal. And then me and my son are just planning to die now. And um, he's like, well, feed me first. And then, um, then you won't run out of oil and flour. And so he hangs out with the widow and she feeds him. And then his son dies, or her son dies, sorry. And God, uh, Elijah's like, God, how can he, she's just been so good to me. How can you let her son die? And so he's obviously, he's a man of compassion. He's a man of passions. And he prays for the son to um, come back to life, and he does. And um, which is kind of unique. The prophets don't really do a lot of miracles. They kind of work in symbols and words, right? Um, they do usually weird stuff like sleep on one side and bury things and then dig them up and, you know, or whatever, right? Um, so they don't typically do a lot of miracles. So he's a little bit unique that way. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, so Elijah kind of has a lot of sort of supernatural kind of things about him. He's sort of, he's very, he's kind of a very interesting sort of character. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm a little bit tired, just one second. Um, cutting things out as we go here, one second. <laughs> All right, so, um, so at the beginning, here we go. Um, so uh, Jezebel, even though wasn't isn't present at the at the uh, contest with the prophets. So he comes back, tells a, he have, tells his wife, here's what Elijah just did, also at the end of the uh, uh, contest. He rounds up the prophets and kills them all. I'm not sure if you know Elijah single-handedly just got them in a line and 850 people just won, next, next, next. I'm not quite sure how that happened, if that was really his hand or not, uh, or if he had a little help there, but. Um, so she's very angry um, and threatens to kill him, obviously. And, um, and you know, I think it's pretty natural to be afraid here. Uh, I've heard this interpretation a lot of times that kind of like, you know, Elijah's just done, he's done some miracles, he's done this amazing contest, how could he be so afraid of just a little old woman, right? And I was 
reading different sermons online, and that's a pretty common interpretation too, kind of like how can he be so afraid? He's, he just runs away, sort of disobedient, not listening to God, um, but um, and that he's sort of seen as cowardly, and I don't think that's fair to Elijah. I don't think that's quite accurate either. Um, I think there'd be some natural fear when someone wants to kill you. I think that's normal. Um, but if God is, like, angry or disappointed with him or thinks that he's disobedient, God really doesn't act that way. Um, so Elijah runs into the desert, and God feeds him with angels, enough food to sustain him for 40 days. God meets him. He listens to him. He talks to him. And then Elijah kind of gets, like, the reward to be able to see God. There's really, like, a not even Jesus got, when he was in his body, got to see God come to him, right? I mean, very few people, Job, Isaiah, like Moses, that's maybe it. Um, so God doesn't seem to be angry, and he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't judge him. He doesn't do anything. He just meets him where he's at and talks to him and listens to Elijah. Um, so I don't think that he, I think there might be some natural fear in there. I'm sure it was a mix of emotions. But um, when he gets out into the desert, he, like, basically says, kill me now. <laughs> Who hasn't felt like, kill me now? I've totally felt like, kill me now. <clears throat> so I regularly feel like, kill me now, sort of like every morning, getting my kids ready for school. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I love my kids. Uh, um, so I think what he's... Uh, yeah, take my life, like, he, and then he just falls asleep, like, that kind of feeling there, when you feel, I think what he's feeling there is sort of like existential despair, he is like exhausted, he has given his all for God, he's doing the right things, he's obeying, he's just done this amazing show, and no one's changed their hearts, no one's changed their minds, um, I think he's feeling kind of like, I'm doing everything, I'm doing the right thing, I've been weak, I've been dependent on you, I've been poor and homeless, and, and I'm just tired, I'm exhausted, what is the point of this? If I can do these amazing shows and people still aren't going to change their hearts, then what do I, why am I, what's the point? Why am I bothering? Um, you know, and people are trying to kill me, like... I think this is just really deep despair um, and just kind of an existential, like, just, like, I'm just so done. I'm weary. Um, I've also kind of read, you know, these interpretations about that Elijah is, like, suicidal or maybe this is an example of mental illness in the Bible. Um, and, well, I don't think that there might be some examples of mental illness and, you know, I think um, and mental health is sort of a continuum. There aren't like mentally well people and mentally ill people. There's like a continuum and we all slide around on that throughout our lives, you know. Um, but I think if you, I don't think he's suicidal. Like I've been suicidal. This is not quite what that is. I think this is like, I'm just so tired. He wants the pain to stop right? Like, even in the Psalms, it says, like, there's so many Psalms about, like, look at the wicked prospering, and here I am serving you, and I'm suffering. What's the point? What's the point of the hurt? What's it accomplishing? And, um, and I think if, I think if you think of him as sort of mentally ill, then it discounts that 
a sort of typical brain that's living a mostly mentally healthy life, in every life, there are these points. Whether you're a mentally, generally mentally well point person or not, there are going to be things that happen to you that just come. So I think it discounts sort of what life experiences if we just kind of label him as mentally ill. So I don't think he's that. I think he's just, and I think the running to the desert is almost like an unconscious thing, right? Like where does he go? He goes to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. He kind of goes back to the source, right? Which sort of makes sense. Like he goes back to where God formed him as a community, gave them a new identity, and, and said, I'm yours, you're mine, let's do this, right? So I think he kind of, it's almost like maybe his body just kind of like stumbled towards that direction, right? Like it's just he needed to kind of go back to, where, you know, when, sometimes when you're confused or maybe you don't, can't hear God, what you go back to is kind of like the last thing you were sort of sure of, right? And um, so I think that's kind of um, what he sort of does here is he kind of just, the, and, and the desert, of course, is like where we meet God, Right? You can be sure that when all the distractions clear away and the noise clears away, the only person in the desert is you and God, right? Um, so I think he's not necessarily running away from God, but probably running to God. Um, he's going back to, to what he knows. Um, and, um, you know, the whole thing very much feels like <clears throat> Moses, right? When Moses has his 40 days up on the mountain where the mountain's shaking and on fire and um, so it's, it's a real kind of uh, allusion to that. Um, and his 40 days, of course, too, is like also a sort of foreshadowing of Jesus' 40 days in the desert. Um, and the Israelites spending 40 years wandering around the desert. Um, and because he, he takes a while to get there, it's not actually his walk from where he left his servant in Judea is like, it's like a 320-kilometer walk, but he takes like 40 days to do it. So he's clearly kind of... <laughs> just sort of taking a while, um, feeling kind of lost, right? Um, and uh, there's probably some disillusionment too, right? Because you really think, and I think we still want to think this, I think we want to think that like miracles, like this big show with the, the prophets, I think we still want to think that a miracle will really help us believe. If I can just see some God to really just, boom, change this situation overnight, then I would really believe. Like, I find that quite tempting, um, but miracles don't change hearts. Like, Jesus criticized the people because they were always demanding miracles. I don't think Jesus did miracles to prove anything. I don't think Jesus, God never comes off to me in the Bible as needing to prove his power or authority. He's totally confident. Jesus was totally confident. He knew he, where he came from. He knew what he was doing. I think the miracles are symbols. They're metaphors for that when the kingdom come, it brings freedom. Does that make sense? So he's not doing it, and so that's the thing. I think this is where Elijah learns that. Elijah's learning, oh, big shows maybe aren't what change hearts. It's not what builds faith. Faith and hearts are changed over time with like encounters with God, like the love of God from God's people and the love of God directly. That's, and that's slow and it's long and we all know that, right? There isn't overnight like, whoa, it is all better now, as nice as that would be. Um, so Elijah's learning too, right? He's learning here too. 
Um, so he goes back to the mountain, and uh, he's sort of looking for God. He's, um, he's, and uh, I think the other thing about all these sort of illusions is that they, they're all to invite remembrance, right? The, a, a prophet's basically main task, I think. I think we still think of prophets in this really kind of mystique sort of way, or, you know, they've got these amazing powers. They know the future, you know. Um, but I think really a prophet's main task is to help people remember. It's like, remember God? Remember? Remember? Remember when you said that you were going to give your heart to God? Remember when we said we were going to live together as a community and do this? That's, they're, so they're not, I don't think prophets are fortune-telling as much as they are statements of reality. Like, if you're stabbing a fork into your head, and I say, eventually you're going to start bleeding, I'm not predicting the future. I'm just telling you the facts. Like, eventually you will bleed from fork in your head a lot of times, right? Uh, I think that's mostly, obviously the prophets do tell some future, but m mostly they're kind of sort of trying to wake people up to reality. What's happening right now? God's heart is available right now. His, the path back to God is available right now, right here and now. It's, it's, that's, and that's a fact. That's not necessarily a fortune-telling, you know, thing. Um, and it's a fact that we a lot of times just want to ignore, actually, right? We want to be able to do whatever we want. We want to have, feel a sense of freedom, you know, to be able to think whatever we want or act however we want. Or maybe we just want to hold on to some selfishness or anger or pride. And, and um, or maybe we feel like, you know, we're not good enough, so we're holding ourselves back from God. So I think there's, it's just a fact that, you know, maybe we shouldn't need prophets to be telling us that, but we do, right? Because we forget. We forget. And... Um, that uh, God is still there and that we're, it's so easy for us to just kind of fall asleep and numb out and escape. And um, God's not numbed out. <laughs> He's not escaping, right? He's available right then and there. Um, so, yeah. Um, so then this is my sustainability tie-in here. So I looked up sustainability. <clears throat> And um, sustainability, I think what we mean when we're talking about sustainability is like how do you love people without like having a meltdown, right? And burning out. I think that's essentially what we're trying to say. But sustainability actually means to be maintained at a certain rate or level. Um, and like, I apologize for this question, but I was just like, is that possible? <laughs> like, is it even possible for us to be maintained at a certain rate or level? We are not machines. We're not robots. Robots and machines stay operating at a function level. But I think in reality, our lives are like this. We serve God. We have highs. We're doing the right thing, and still it sucks. Life is still hard. Poor people are still with you. People don't change their hearts overnight. There are people who hate you, um, and God can feel distant. I think you can be doing all the right things, and it's still there's going to be moments that just feel like this because that's what it is to be living in this life. And I think we burn out a lot because our motivations for serving God are 
all kinds of other things besides serving God. And I, you know, I don't, I don't even think we can have pure motivations. If you're waiting to do pure motivation, motivations, we'd all be doing nothing. We'd all be staying at home by ourselves, right? So I don't think you have to wait for pure motivations to start, you know, trying to, trying to serve God. But I've got all other kinds of ones. Like I want to make God happy so he doesn't punish me later. I want people to like me. I want to look impressive. Like there's just all kinds of reasons to be serving God. And um, I think to examine those motivations before God obviously is like, way harder than just like, I'm just going to do this and this and this and this and this. It's way easier just to keep going and doing stuff than to be like, uh, God, can you tell me what my real heart is when I'm doing this stuff, right? Um, um, so, and uh, I think that sustainability, we often think about like kind of what we're doing, right? Got to make sure we don't do too much. We've got to balance it with some self-care, balance it with some prayer, balance it with some like hanging out here. And... I, you know, and um, I'm wondering if we can really hit that balance. Like I say, we're not robots. We, maybe it's just going to be, I think sometimes when you serve God, you're going to do too much, and then you're going to get yourself exhausted, and then you're going to have these highs, and you're going to have these lows, and, you know, that's probably just part of it, right? It's part of it. I'm not saying we shouldn't keep sustainability in mind, but, um, Yeah. So, um, so how, here we have him in the desert. Um, come back to our voice here. Right. God says, what are you doing here? I love how just so casual that is. <laughs> like as if God has no idea what he's doing there. <clears throat> um, and, <laughs> um, but you know, God's like conversational because we're conversational, right? So that's... It gives Elijah a chance to say um, where he's at. Um, and uh, he says, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Uh, Ahab and Jezebel have been killing a lot of prophets. That's accurate. And they do want to kill him now. Um, we're about to learn he's not the only one, so there's a bit of exaggeration there, but, um, you know, when you're feeling, like, really low, you kind of catastrophize and make it a little bigger than it is, right? That's totally normal. Um, and, uh, and, but I like that God just, yeah, gives him an opportunity just to say how he's feeling. And, um, and I think it's, like, a really beautiful story of God's care and comfort for Elijah. And, um, and so then the question is, why doesn't he just give him, like, the calm, still, small voice or whatever? Um, or the sound of sheer silence or the gentle blowing or whatever you want to um, translate that. Um, why does he do, like, we've just seen the big shows don't do a lot of work, but then God just does this, like, big show. Um, and I was thinking um, that the reason he probably does the big show is because he's in this kind of despair and it's, and it's in his body. Like that, when you're in that kind of despair, it's also in your body. And um, I don't think God's just trying to be impressive and scary because that's not like God and he's not trying to get his attention. They've been talking, he's got his attention. I think it's symbolic for sure. And then, um, but I think it's also personal. I think he does it because Elijah needs it. I think he does this because this is what Elijah needs right now. And, um, 
And when you are like, is anyone familiar with the flipped lid concept? So this is like your brain stem here, and this is like your middle brain here. So this is your primal brain, your middle brain, and this is your prefrontal cortex right here. So um, they teach this now to kids and stuff in schools sometimes, that when their lid is flipped, like they're freaking out, all that you have access to is your emotional state. And this happens to us too, not just kids. <laughs> so <clears throat> when your kids are screaming in your face, your lid flips. And we often try to reason people out of how they're feeling. And you can't reason someone out of how they're feeling because the part that can take the reason is offline, basically. It's just not functioning, right? So you've got to flip the lid back down. So I think God is flipping uh, Elijah's lid back down. I think he kind of, he gives them this insane, like, you know, there's like earth, wind, and fire. Maybe that's where the band got its name, you know. It's, um, it's like, this, like, it's just, it's that you, if that's all that's happening to you, you are also feeling that in your body, right? There's an earthquake, there's fire going on, like, it's, like, freaky. And I think, um, so he gives him this experience of awe. And awe is, is actually super interesting. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but there's actually been a lot of research on awe in the, like, the last 15 years. And Yes, um, because awe is something that's sort of slipping away in our society, right? Because we're living online, we're separate from each other, we're separate from nature, so we're separate from a lot of things that normally give us awe. And cool is bored, right? Like, coolness is actually kind of like, oh, I don't really care about anything. And when you're in that kind of attitude, you never have awe about squat, right? So, um, but awe actually does a lot of really cool things. One, it, it triggers your nervous system, but it triggers both parts of your nervous system. It triggers the, there's a threat and calm down. So sort of, sort of simultaneously, you're sort of in this like really like kind of unique state. And often when people are in awe, they open their mouths and they breathe in. Big breaths help our brains flip back down. Um, awe is, some scientists think it's the fastest way to change how you think and thus how you behave. Um, it calms our inflammatory response. Uh, it makes people more likely to believe in the supernatural. Um, it increases our sense of well-being. It increases humility. Um, it gives you, it changes our perception of time so it makes people feel like a sense of limitless time. So there's more patience, sort of calms people down. And it does really, one other really cool thing, it um, increases our sense of belonging and interconnectedness. There's more of a sense of brotherhood. And so because of that, it increases altruistic behaviors. Um, so awe is actually, that sounds like everything Elijah kind of needs right now. He needs some patience, he needs some calming, he needs to like remember the people. Um, it, doesn't that sort of seem like what we need, right? Awe is like really the antidote to despair and world weariness, right? It really is. Like awe is the antidote to despair and world weariness. And so he gives him this display and calms Elijah, I think. And I mean, it, Elijah says the same thing again, but my, I, I would imagine that he says it in a different tone, right? Like maybe the first one is like kind of kid going, and then they did this to me, and then right, and you're like, whoa, take a breath, tell me, and then they calm down a kid, and then the kid says the same thing, but I've been serving you, and it's not working, so I think he probably ends up kind of saying it in a different tone, um, and, and but then so he hears this still small voice, um, I 
talk to Joanne about the translation, so we've got NLT up here. I wish that it had NRSV, because the NRSV says, um, the sound of sheer silence. So God speaks to him in the silence. For me, when I am like the most maxed out and overwhelmed and just there's just no answer, there kind of really are no answers. I don't even need God's answers. I feel like God's silence is like the best thing. It's like, right, Job's friends came and they talked his ear off. What they really needed, he just needed him to be silent. He just, they just needed his presence. And so God just gives him his presence and, and uh, he hides his face. Um, but there's no rebuke, there's no correction, there's no like, you know, why'd you run out here? He just meets him where he's at and then gives him a chance to say it again. And, and uh, he says again, like, I've done all this stuff. Like, what's going on? I don't get it. Well, you know? And, and then, and then um, the cool thing about, like, the people of God is that God changes his mind sometimes. We often think that our will has to be constantly submitted, that if you want something, God can't want that thing. And if God's going to ask you to do something, it'll probably be something you hate, you know? Like, I think, you know, like, I mean, Matt, I didn't grow up in the church, but Matt grew up in the church, and they literally just explicitly said, if you want it, that's not what God wants. I think that is not accurate. <laughs> I think that it's, uh, like, you know, I know Jesus sort of taught, you know, thy will be done, but a lot of times prophets actually said, no, don't do what you want to do. Like, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were like super evil. But Abraham's like, no, no, no. What happens if there's 10 people, right? He like bargains with God. He's like, don't do that. Don't kill them. And same with like Moses. Like he, people, God wanted to like come and kill them. And God's, and Moses says, I'd rather be written out of the book of life personally than see you kill all these people. So God's will isn't sort of something that's like, boom, land and down on us like this heavy taskmaster that we are always trying to, you got to just force your will into his will. I think if you're submitted to God, you're honest with God, I think sometimes our wills are going to coincide. They're going to be, um, you know, God is not Pharaoh, just going, Psh, do what I say, Psh, do what I say, right? God's not interested in your duty. He's interested in your heart. Like, God doesn't need us to do anything for him. He could do it all by himself. He just wants to do it with us, right? He, he wants, and he says that, and, and he says, like, I, you know, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm doing. I'm going to tell Moses what I'm doing. He wants, he just wants our company. He wants our community in it. He wants us to join in it. Um, and so um, I think, I don't know what God's maybe original plan might have been, but I, I partly feel like God kind of gives Elijah here, throws him a few bones, basically. Like, so he says, um, I know it seems like you're totally, like, alone. You're totally lonely, obviously. But, so up until now, the kings have just been doing by, like, son inherits, son inherits. It's almost like God says, okay, we'll anoint, I will choose a couple new kings. So he comes back in, and he's going to choose the king. So it kind of kind of takes some more control of the situation. Um, and then he says, there's actually 7,000 people. I mean, 7,000 people probably seems like a lot, but I mean, there was like millions of Israelites at this point, right? Like, it's still, he's still a kind of in a minority, but he's not going to be alone. And he gives him Elisha. Like, there's another good key to sustainability, right? Like, you got to do it with a friend. It's just way easier to do it than all by yourself, right? And so maybe Elijah, maybe was God going to give him Elijah? We don't know. I don't know. I sometimes think maybe he just gave him Elijah because Elijah was lonely. 
And Elijah's like, I can't take it by myself anymore. And so he's like, all right, here's a friend. Here's a friend, right? It's like when Moses said, I don't want to talk. I can't do it. I can't do it. He's like, okay, we'll give you Aaron, right? And a singing sister. Um, so um, I think God, God here, yeah, we don't know what God's first plan was. But also after this, Elijah doesn't, get, doesn't do too much more. Like in an, a few more chapters, like maybe God's heard him and he said, I've had enough. And in a few more chapters, he does like a couple more prophecies. He does these anointings. And then he's like taken away, right? Like maybe God's like, all right, you said you had enough. Maybe you've had enough. Like I'm done, right? So you can be done. Um, so I don't know. We don't know. Um, so basically, I, that's kind of my point. I think that perfect sustainability isn't possible. We're, we're closer to God when we serve a God who he believes that we actually cares about how we feel. I think we're closer to sustainability if we really think God cares about how you feel. He, he cares that you're lonely. He cares that you've had enough. He wants to hear it, right? It's way better to just say, God, um, I really don't want to, you know, do this, but I'll do it because you're asking me, than to go, all right, I'm going to do the thing. Ah, you know, God wants to, like, hear your real heart, because the, the action's not the important part. It's the heart in it, right? Um, and that God isn't a Pharaoh-style taskmaster. He is, he is, he's not, yeah, he's, like, awesome and terrible at times, kind of, and in those kind of real, true, original meanings of those words. But, He's not coercive. He's not bossy. He's not just trying to prove that he's got dominance over us. Um, that I think God, doing God's will and serving God really look like just offering your heart. Because that's the heart, you know, is if it's a mixed up heart, if it's an emotional heart, if it's a somewhat pure heart but somewhat not quite pure heart. It's just way better just to, like, put that out there. And um, I'm going to finish with two sweet examples of this very thing. So Elijah was like a lot of years ago, but we have Gordy and Joanna. And I was just thinking at the end of this, I was like, we have two pastors who broke down and didn't disappear. I think there are lots of pastors who break down or ministry people break down and they just disappear from their communities. You just don't see them anymore, right? I've met so many ex-bitter pastors, like it's shocking. Pastors are in like an insanely tremendous pressured job. They're pressured to be a lot of things for a lot of people and to look like they've got it together and to look like they've got the answers. I think it's like worse than underwater welding. So, um, <laughs> but we have two leaders right here in our community who had breakdowns and stayed in the community and were honest about the breakdown and they let their brokenness be a source of healing for other people. In my mind, that is way better than a pastor who's never broken down. Way better. And way better than a pastor who broke down and kept it a secret. It is way better. Like, we don't have to use Elijah. We've got some great examples of, like, right here in our community, people who are like, here's my broken heart. And I tell you, the reason I go to this church is because Gordy had a breakdown. Like, honest to God. Like, I just, it's so real. It's so honest, right? And I don't think these guys broke down because they had, like, personal weakness or they were, like, you know, they were doing the right things. 
were doing the right things, right? And it still just went hard. And that's just the reality. We're like, death is around us, right? There's, like, if you follow God, things are going to die. Like, Jesus is the ultimate example. You can be doing all the right things, and it ends in death. Yay, there's your message. Bye. Um, so, so cheer up. You're going to fail. You know, but the Bible is so full of that, right? Like, we're worried that we're going to fall short. The Bible's like, yep, you fall short. Your fears are true. You fall short. But God's got a plan. It doesn't end in death, right? It ends in resurrection. It ends in resurrection. <laughs> but even Jesus wasn't the special snowflake that got to sneak around death somehow. He just had to go through it. And that meant death of, like, his own ego, right? He's tempted for 40 days. What's he tempted about? All his ego. He had, if, if, if he was human, he had an ego. He had an ego to lay down. There's death of dreams. There's death of hopes. There's death of your plans. There's death of loved ones. There's death of things that you love. There's death about things, your health. Things just go, and they die. And you feel like saying, kill me now. Like, and you've done all the right stuff. And I think that's the key to sustainability, is not like trying to keep yourself at the level. It's like knowing what to do, knowing where to go when it cr all crashes down. I think that's the key to sustainability, because it's going to crash down, guaranteed, I promise you. If you already had your breakdown, it'll pro you'll probably have another one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You know, like sometimes I feel like, oh, whew, thank God I just got through that. And I'm like, people say, well, I can't get much worse than that. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> it can always get worse. <laughs> I've got an amazing imagination. You know, um, but there's resurrection, right? There is resurrection. And God listens to you. When you said, I've had enough, God listens. When you say, I'm lonely, God listens. And he may not do an amazing big show, but he's certainly answering. He's certainly working on changing your heart. He's certainly working on bringing it forward. He is preparing the place for us, right? Um, and I think what's amazing about God is that God doesn't numb out. He doesn't escape from the pain. Jesus did not, you know, like he said, ah, oh, this sucks. Are you sure? Are you sure? Like in Garden of Gethsemane, can you, can you do something else maybe? Okay, no, this is it. All right. You know, but... So God's, like, totally suffering with us. It's not like he's sitting up there going, whew, that looks like a big mess, right? His heart is broken, right? So he's not, we're not alone when we're suffering. We're not just sharing our suffering. We're, we're sharing Christ's suffering when we suffer. So, yeah, that's it. I feel like that's hope. I hope you guys feel that same way. <laughs> Despite all the death talk. Beautiful. Thank you, Sandra. Yes, please. Yes, so we're going to go get the kids. Thank you, Sandra. That was surprisingly very encouraging. 